Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. All right, welcome back to the show today. We are right in the middle of a series on the churches in the book of Revelation. And two guesses about who's not with us this morning. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> well, hopefully he'll be in the studio here here pretty quick. Um, so um, can one of you guys catch us up to speed? Like, what's the relevance of these letters to the churches in Revelation today? So during the first century, um, Jesus communicates to seven churches in Asia Minor through the Apostle John. And really, it's a, a series of letters that if you go geographically, it's, it's, a, it's a loop. Um, and the idea is that these churches are real churches in the first century, but the issues that they have, those things that are both positive and negative, are characteristic of the church throughout all ages. And so what you, you'll find is that Jesus Christ is communicating to the church, broadly speaking, through these seven churches. Um, I think Jonathan mentioned either last time or the time before, the idea that seven is the number of completeness in the Bible. And so um, symbolically what you're seeing is that these seven churches represent the church as a, as a whole. And what you'll find is that as we go through each of these churches, hopefully we see things that um, either Christ is commending uh, or Christ is saying, you know what, this needs further attention. There, there needs to be repentance and, and renewal that occurs with regard to certain areas. I think one striking characteristic of, of every one of these letters is that Jesus is asserting his kingly and uh, kingly authority over each church. I think we get the idea kind of in a in American Christianity, this idea of McChurch, that you can just create church however you want to, that it's just kind of up in the air, like however you want to form it, you can form it. And and what Jesus is doing in all these letters is he's saying, I have, I'm for you here, I'm against you here, fix this, or I'm going to take away the lampstand. And I should have said this before, too. Um, we're not just learning about the church in each of these letters. In each letter, we're also learning something about Jesus Christ, the head of the church. So each letter tells us something about Jesus um, as he relates to the church, and it tells us something about the church itself. So I think that's helpful to keep in mind um, as you go through these letters and you read these, um, that the first thing you're really asking is, what do I learn about Jesus Christ? Then, what do I learn about the church, his church? That's right, and that's why at the, at the end of each letter, he says, uh, he who has an ear. That that right there is a, a signal that, oh, this isn't just for that church. It's for the church down through the ages. Right. Okay, well, we did Ephesus last time, so brother, do you want to read the letter to Smyrna? Letter to Smyrna found in Revelation 2, uh, beginning verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, 
the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those that say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So immediately a couple things that we learn about Jesus Christ, as you pointed out, Russ, that he says, I know of your tribulation. So he says, I, I know something currently about you. And then he points to the future and he says, and I know what's going to happen to you very shortly. Yeah. So, so this king over the church, this Jesus, is omniscient over everything the church experiences. The other thing we learn from him is he's the, one, the giver of life. He, he gives life. So he's telling he's telling them, you know, you're not going to be hurt by the second death. You know, he's the one who who was first and last, who died and came to life. Uh, this is something that we're learning about him. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of being the first and the last um, relates to what Josh is saying. He's he's eternal. He's outside of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so he knows present tense, but he also knows future tense because it's for him it's all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, he is the first and the last. He's right. eternal. And this is a claim of deity. And I, I just saw a statistic the other day that there's an alarming amount of American evangelicals that are denying the deity of Jesus Christ, kind of the the, the Aryan heresy, you know. Uh, the, the words of the first and the last, you can't claim this unless yeah. you're God. That's right. I mean, th- these these are the titles and the the attributes of God throughout the Scripture, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So this is blasphemy if Jesus is not God. Yeah, we have, you know, we we have other ways of saying the same kind of thing. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, it, it encompasses, you know, everything in between and beyond. Yep. All right, so that dealt with uh, – did you want to say something? I was just going to say this is one of those churches that you really don't see a lot of negative that, that Christ has against the church. There's, you don't see an evaluation and a rebuke in that sense, but he, he, he talks about those among them. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah, yeah so mo- moving now to what we learn about the church here, he, he talks about their, their suffering that they're going to experience. Uh, do not fear what you are about to suffer. <coughs> And then he gives some specific details to the church in Smyrna. But let's let's ask more, you know, broadly or more generally for us: Why is it God's purpose that believers would suffer? I mean, because obviously, if He's in control of the church, He has the ability to protect the church or bring the church through fire. And He specifically says, "This is going to happen that you may be tested." So, you know, what's God's purpose in in our suffering? Oftentimes, uh, it's to keep us from assimilating with the world. Um, so, you know, without those tests, we end up living so much among them that we aren't separated. And this is a way to distinguish those who are Christ from the rest of society. Mm. I think suffering can can have many purposes. One is it, as in the book of Job, it, it helps us know who God is better. Um, it, it gives us a clearer view of the godness of God. Secondly, I, I think suffering can be a refining um, purpose in our lives. Um, as as Jonathan was saying, sometimes it's about 
removing our worldliness. Sometimes it's about um, dealing with specific sins that we've failed to see. Sometimes it's, it's just simply about helping us to love Jesus Christ for himself and not for the blessings that we receive mm. from him. Um, but I also think sometimes there's suffering in our life that we we go through, and this is where I think Paul goes in Second Corinthians, that sometimes we suffer so that we might be useful for others within Christ's church, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that our suffering is for others. Yeah. Um, so sometimes all the time it's our suffering is for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Um, our suffering might be a refining for ourselves and also our suffering might be for the edification and encouragement and comfort of, of others within the church. Well, let me give you, um, and I know that you would have included this, but also it's a it's a witness to the unbelieving world. Yep, so Paul, sure. Paul says in Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, being put in prison, persecuted for the faith, a form of suffering, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Mm-hmm. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. When the watching world sees that we're willing to suffer for mm-hmm. Christ, that's a testimony to them that Christ is more valuable than our comfort and our safety and our security. And I would just say to that that every moment of our life is a gospel moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that everything that we go through, good or bad, is an opportunity to direct people and point people to to Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. And I think oftentimes we live life unaware uh, of that reality. Um, years ago, John Piper wrote a book entitled Don't Waste Your Cancer. And in, the essence of the book was don't waste your cancer by by having this be only about you. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a moment where you can put the gospel on display, the grace of God on display in your life. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say that that's really true about each of the moments of our day. Yeah. Um, good or bad. In this case, we're talking about suffering, but I I'm think glad it also can, can be the, the good things too. I'm glad he connected to the cancer though, because I think that some people think that unless I'm suffering for a direct gospel issue, like unless I'm being persecuted for my faith, then my suffering doesn't really count. It doesn't, I can't bring it under the, the rubric of gospel suffering. And I think Piper's title don't waste your cancer is a good reminder that no matter what you're going through, no matter what kind of suffering you have, you can all make it a gospel type of suffering. And, and I think the, the principle is, are you willing to say, not my will, but your will be done? And if you can say that, then, then, you're, suff- then you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Mm-hmm. My mom used to say um, she died of cancer, whatever, 30, or almost 40 years ago now. Um, she used to say when she was um, going through um, that whole experience that the unbelieving world needs to see um, Christians go through cancer too, mm-hmm. and they need to see a difference. Yeah, um, and she would often say that when people would pray for her healing, mm-hmm. and she wasn't saying, "Well, don't pray for that," but she wasn't in, in a way saying. But it's okay if I'm not healed because the unbelieving world needs to see a Christian die from cancer too. Amen. Suffering tends to refine our thoughts quite a bit, you know, in terms of, you know, what really matters. We get a, there's a refining quality. Mm -hmm. It it clarifies, it clarifies real distinctions, you know, about the gospel. In fact, not only does it clarify who's an enemy of the cross and who's a follower of the cross, but it also... um, 
I know that there are times when you have a lot more boldness in speaking, uh, partly because you're suffering, um, and you you see things quite clearly. Yeah, amen. I think Pilgrim's Progress gives us a couple of uh, pretty decent pictures um, about suffering and the role of suffering. So, um, what is it? Faithful that dies in in vanity, um, vanity fair. fair. Um, and he's suffering to put Jesus Christ on on display. Mm-hmm. But you also get in other parts of the book, and now I'm going to forget some of the names, but when persecution and suffering occur, that others turn back. Uh, yeah. They don't want to have anything mm-hmm. to do with... It, pro- it proves that they're not part of the That's fold. correct. Yeah. And so that's that whole right. refining or discriminatory um, yeah. function of really proving who are who are gods and who are not. Yeah. I love that uh that that narrative at the very end when hopeful and Christian are crossing the river and Christian is afraid and hopeful is reminding Christian of everything that uh the Lord has brought them through mm. and he just becomes an encouragement. It's that I um we had a saint here die here recently and um I talked to the social worker and she was happened to be a believer and she said that uh you know I've seen lots of people die and there is a marked difference between Christians dying and non-Christians mm-hmm. dying, like b- night and day, black and white. Like it, most of the time there's terror in unbelievers that are passing away. And most of the time, not not always, but there's there's joy in, in the believers that are passing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I like here where he, he says at the end, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really related to the to the teachings of Paul um, that are light and momentary tribulations um, really are don't compare to the glory that awaits. And you have here John saying, "Be faithful," because at the end of the day, this is momentary. What you have that's coming is eternal. What you're going to get is the crown of life. That's right. Um, you're going to have life everlasting. That's beyond really our wildest imagination. And um, it's really a call to say, hey, whatever we're going through here is, is really quite momentary. Amen. We'll see you next time. 